For scripture reading, go with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, please. Romans chapter 8. Several years ago now, uh, there was a family in our church that had a fire. And uh, it was, I'll tell you who it is because I know they won't be embarrassed by it. It was the Nautiluses. And uh, when I found out about the fire, I went out to, you know, comfort the family. Like, you're going to comfort somebody who's had a fire. But nonetheless, I felt I had a responsibility to go out and at least and talk with them. And if I could help or minister to them in any way, assist them, meals, set up new housing, all those things to think through. And when I got there, I met with uh, Wusmik, and uh, we began to actually, we were still there when the firemen were there, I think, were we? Yeah, they had just come. So I hadn't, it was very early in the morning. And uh, as, as time went on, we got together with Nordlis and talked about what we, how we could help out. And in the conversation with Rose, I pastorally, said the famous verse, Romans 8.28, and said, you know, God is good. Of course, I hadn't had a fire. Okay, I wasn't standing in ashes, but yet I still knew God was good. And Rose said, without any hesitation, God is good all the time. And that just struck me, because I was thinking God was good, and she was thinking all the time. And so we're focusing today just on Romans 8.28. I just... I want to go faster through Romans 8. I just can't seem to get my pedal to the metal on it. So we're just going to spend time in Romans 8.28. And also, this morning, I'm going to use the New American Standard Bible. The reason is, I believe the rendering, the translation of Romans 8.28 through the New American Standard Bible is a little bit clearer uh, than than the translation that I normally use, which is the New King James. So I'm going to read just verse 28 to you. The title of our message is, God is Good. All the time. So Romans 8.28, this is from the New American Standard Bible. Let me read it, read it to you. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Let me read it again. And we know, that's a very important word by the way, we know that God causes all, very important word, things, to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Father, we thank you for, again, as always, the truth of Scripture. Through the Spirit of God, open our hearts and minds to the meaning of the Scripture, the application of the Scripture. I pray that we be enlightened by it. I pray that it be life-changing as it's the Spirit of God through the Word of God that brings life, changes to conform us to the image of the Son of God. Lord, we thank you, God, for the privilege and the opportunity to examine the Scriptures. We thank you, God, for the impact and difference it can make. We pray as we enter into the service that, our, that we will be attentive with worship, attentive as you use it to speak to us in Christ's name. Uh, as many of you know, Charlie, Charlie Walker, who is the grandfather of, or of the Walkers, but Colin's father, has been in ICU for a few days now and very, very ill. He passed away last night.
So we want to, want to pray for Kali and uh, their family as they uh, go through this transition. They care for the planning of the funeral and memorial service and other things. Um, Charlie had an incredible testimony. He knew the Lord, uh, had been in the community for many, many years. People knew him and respected him. Uh, very open in his testimony. And uh, it's, it's great joy when we know that an individual has passed away, has gone home to be the Lord. doesn't mean we miss him any less but it's so comforting to know that he is with the Lord. He passed away last night about 11.30 uh, p.m. So anyway, let's take a moment and just pray for Kali and his family as they care for and plan ahead and, and also thank the Lord for uh, the, the witness and testimony that Charlie was to all and so many. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, your, your deep, deep love for us. We thank you that we have a friend in Jesus who is seeing you now face to face. Thank you that as you've seen fit to take him home to be with you. What an incredible testimony and heritage he leaves behind. And I pray that you'll continue to minister to Kali and the rest of the family members as they uh, plan the di different things now as well as they care for his estate. And yet we magnify your name that we can know through his testimony and through his life that he demonstrated consistently the fruit of the Spirit. And I pray you may use even this as a means because of his testimony within the community to see the lost turn to Christ. And again, we thank you that the joy we can have as a church family. I pray that we will um, certainly be an encouragement and continue to pray on a daily basis for Kali, uh, and that we may, either through notes or texts or phone calls, be able to, to encourage him. Thank you, God, again, for the joy that we can celebrate together, and yet in sadness as we... A dear saint has gone home to be with you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. In her book, The Mystery on the Desert, a lady by the name of Maria Reich described a series of strange hills and valleys made by the Indians in Peru centuries ago. These hills would go on for hundreds of yards, then abruptly stop or turn suddenly or smoothly to the right or left. There seemed to be no pattern. For centuries, these hills were believed to be the ancient remains of some sort of irrigation system or perhaps an ancient boundary markers for some sort of mystical religion. In 1939, the mystery was solved. Paul Kosick of Long Island University discovered the true meaning by simply observing the hills from high up in the air as he flew over the territory in an airplane. The seemingly random hills and valleys forming straight lines then curving this way and that were actually lines which formed enormous drawings of birds and other animals.
Imagine creating art that you could not really appreciate on earth. In fact, you cannot even make sense of it on the ground. You had to gain a higher perspective to see the beauty of these works of art. The point is this. Paul is saying in Romans 8.28 that the beauty and art in your life is most often impossible to fully appreciate from earth's perspective. You need a higher altitude to put the pieces together. So Paul writes to these Roman believers who are struggling to make sense of the difficulties of their Christian life that they may have, that have, since they have come to Christ, these encouraging words. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I'm going to look at two things this morning, what it doesn't mean and what it does mean. You've had those experiences, I'm sure, sometimes where a negative experience helps you to learn faster than if somebody just said, good job. Sometimes failure is your best teacher. So let's look, first of all, then, what it, what it doesn't mean. First of all, it does not offer precise explanations for suffering. It does not offer precise explanations for suffering. This is not a quick answer for grieving. This is not a band-aid to stick on some suffering believer. This verse does not pretend to solve the riddles of life, nor does this verse attempt to answer the questions that begin with the word why. Why, God? Why? It doesn't pretend to begin answer those questions. The call came early in the morning. The family was rushing their three-month-old baby to the hospital. She seemed, appeared to be lifeless. As I came into the ICU with the mother holding her deceased three-month-old baby in her arms, and her husband kneeling at her feet. Literally pulling his hair out of his head with both hands. Looking up at me and crying out, Why, Pastor? Why? Looking at his grief-strewn face, I said, I don't know. You think of Job. Job demanded an explanation from God. Why? Why am I suffering? It's interesting how God responded. Not with an explanation but a reminder of his divine attributes, beginning in chapter 38. Not why this is happening, but Job, this is who I am. 
And then in chapter 42, after God gets done speaking to him, Job says, I've heard of thee by the hearing of the word, but now my eye seeth thee. I find myself disgusting, and I sit here in this ash heap, my body covered with sores. I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Why? It does not offer precise explanations for suffering. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9 may help us grasp the truth of this. Isaiah speaking through, or God speaking through Isaiah says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Think back of Job. God answered him with his attributes. Job repented. He didn't know. He did not know that God was going to replace everything he lost. He repented regardless of what God was going to do. God is good all the time. We want answers, but we lack the capacity to grasp God's infinite mind or the way he intervenes, manages, moves, and controls the events of our lives. In other words, we all see, all we see are a lot of random twists and turns rather than God's divine perspective, his divine design, if you want to put it that way. It does not, secondly, it does not prohibit the believer from sorrow. We are not embarrassing ourselves or God by grieving and weeping over our loss, our pain, or even our questions. We think of John chapter 11 where Jesus' friend Lazarus was dead. He had died. He had been sent for, but he waited. By the time he got to Lazarus there at Bethany, he had been dead for four days. Jesus used the euphemism, he sleepeth, and his apostles said, his disciples said, well, it's not, it hasn't been real safe for you to go to Bethany in that area. Your life has been threatened. He's, and besides that, if he sleeps, he'll wake up. And Jesus had to say to him, says, no, he's dead. Literally, dead. So he, he arrives four days after Lazarus dies as he approached the house, uh, two different occasions, both Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, came out and said to him, it was, it was uh, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In essence, what they're saying is, it's your fault. He died. No, it was a true statement. But basically they're saying it was your fault. Jesus did not respond. He did not reprimand them. He doesn't scold them. He doesn't suggest that perhaps their brother's death was his fault. He doesn't even stop them from weeping. As the story continues, surrounded by family and friends, Jesus is deeply moved and he asks where the body of Lazarus is. When he views Lazarus, he could have said something extremely profound. Instead, 
the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Here's Jesus, the most complete, most perfect man, attending the funeral of a friend and openly weeping without embarrassment, without apology. In fact, those watching him said, see how much he loved him. See, Romans 8.28 is not a precise explanation for suffering, nor is it a prohibition against sorrow. Thirdly, it's not a ticket to convenient Christian living. Pastor Ken, what do you mean by that? There is a thought that since God's going to work out everything anyway, why get so fired up about living in obedience to the word of God? It's all going to work out. I don't have any responsibility. See, this verse is not a hall pass from the discipline of study. This verse is not a doctor's excuse for apathy and complacency. This verse is not a parental permission slip to skip the Great Commission. This verse is not the bye week in the pursuit of purity. The point I'm trying to make is that 828 will never justify complacency in your walk with Christ nor will it endorse convenience of obedience to the word of God. We're to run the race, we're to fight the fight, we're to bear the cross, glorifying God with whatever he has allowed our hands to handle. We're to embrace the challenges of the living word and at the same time do it on our knees. It's not a ticket to convenient Christian living. Let me give you a few challenges from Scripture that you need to fight the fight. You need to bear the cross. You need to run the race. Ephesians 6.1, obey your parents. 1 Corinthians 6.15, if you're single, only develop a romantic relationship with a believer. Ephesians 5.22-25, if you're married, husbands actively, because love is a verb, by the way, actively love and lead your wives. And wives, Actively love and respect your husbands. Then there's Ephesians 6, 4. Parents, raise up your children with an understanding of biblical and spiritual truth. There's 1 Timothy 5, 8. Provide for the physical needs of your family. Fight the fight. Run the race. Bear the cross. This is in a bye week. 2 Corinthians 8, chapter 8 and 9. Give to the Lord his church and his cause. Ever wonder why a $10 bill looks so small at the grocery store and so big at church? Give to the Lord his church and his cause. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray consistently and regularly. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, develop an attitude of gratitude and joy. 1 Corinthians 12, serve the church body where God has led you. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, exercise your spiritual gifts. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, consistently worship with gathered believers. 2 Timothy 2.15, study the word of God. Psalm 119, verse 11, memorize the word of God. Psalm 1, verse 2, meditate on the word of God. That's just scratching the surface of the challenges that we are to embrace, not release. It's not a ticket to convenient Christian living. Now, what does it mean? 
And all we and all and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Paul's going to provide us six things from our aerial perspective of the twisting hills and valleys of our lives. So what does it mean? 28a. It reveals the certainty of God's purpose. And we know. Remember I said that's a very important word in this verse. Paul didn't write and we think. He didn't write and we wish. He didn't write, oh, this is how I feel. There's a huge difference between thinking as in this is my opinion. Wishing maybe or may not be true. Feeling. An emotional response that could simply be from indigestion. And knowing which is a reference to an established fact. I might be feeling exactly the opposite of what God is actually doing. I might not feel that God is in control. I might feel that God does not love me. I might feel at times that God has abandoned me. But in the fallen world, as fallen human beings, surrounded by fallen humanity, we must recognize that our feelers are fallen too. When the hills and valleys of our life take strange twists and turns. Only to come to an abrupt end. We do not need someone's opinion, wishing, or feeling. We need to know. There are two words, prominent words, used in Scripture for know. The first one is gnosko. The second one is oida. And both are often translated know, knowing, to know. Let's talk about the first one, gnosko, knowledge. To know something by means of personal experience. Paul used it when he wrote to the Philippians. He said that I may know him. In other words, I may experience him. And he goes on and says, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. That I may know, that I may experience that. By the way, it's not wrong to even pray that. For instance, is God with me right now? The answer is yes. Is it wrong for me to pray, God, give me a sense of your presence? Show me. I want to experience it. It's not wrong to pray that. But keep in mind, he is already here in our presence. Paul is saying, Oh, that I might know by means of personal experience, I want to be involved in knowing by experiencing his power and his sufferings. Let me give you this illustration, I think, to clarify this. Gnosko. The same thought was expressed when a wife who knows Greek tells her husband, I know I need to gnosko, you love me. I need to experience your love for me. Of course, her husband gives her a blank stare and says, I have no idea what you just said, but if you say it again, you're going to have to clean it up yourself. She patiently explains, because as is true, if we want to admit it, most of our wives are smarter than we are anyway. I need reassurance that you love me. I need to know by means of experience. I need to see that vacuum cleaner making its way across the living room floor the trash making its way outside of the garbage can. Let me experience your love. 
That's gnosko. We kind of laugh and chuckle at that, but nonetheless, that's experiencing love. Love is an action word. The word oida. This is not a knowledge gained by personal experience. Oida is not knowledge gained by personal experience. This is knowledge gained by propositional truth or declarative knowledge, or another way to say it is established truth. This is just true. We know this is a fact, not something I experience. For instance, you don't experience 2 plus 2 equals 4. You just know that as a fact, do you not? Now, if you want to experience, you could take two oranges from one basket and two other oranges from the other basket, and if you count them up, you get four. Now, I've experienced it. But the truth of the matter is, that's a fact we memorized. We just know it's true. It's an established fact. It's established truth. We just learned it. If you were to take a test this week in history, and one of the test questions was, where's the Amazon River? You've never been there. You've never seen it. But yet you just know that it's in Brazil, South America. How do you know that? You just learned that. It's an established fact. That's oida. That's the word that Paul is using here. He says, and we oida. And we just know. He's not saying we know God is in control because we personally experience something, because we see evidence of it. He's saying, in effect, we know God is in control because he said so. We don't like that answer, but that's the best answer I can give you. We know it's so because he said so. There are times in your life when that is all you have because God said so. Oida. And we know. We just know that this is a true statement. It's an incredible promise given to us. Were you to feel it or not, whether you see evidence of it or not, you know it is true because God said so. And of course, it is impossible for God to lie. Secondly, it reveals the controller of God's purpose. And we know, Oida, that God causes. God is the controller of the divine design. He's the controller of what we come to see from the top, the view above, to help us understand. That's, by the way, <laughs> that's great news. I'm not in charge, and neither are you. God is God, and you're not, and neither am I. If the purpose of God depended on our cleverness, our perceptiveness, our diligence, our strength, our wisdom, our desire, or anything at all, the purpose of God would look like our list of New Year's resolutions that we make only to break. Our confidence, the believer's confidence, in God's purpose is directly related to the cause of God's divine design being none other than God, not man. Give you an example. Joseph, beginning in chapter 37 of the book of Genesis, all the way to chapter 30. Primary character that comes into focus then is Joseph. He was a favorite son of Jacob, despised and hated by his ten older brothers. He was thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, thrown into prison, raised to second only to Pharaoh. There was a great famine throughout the land. His brothers and Jacob come from Egypt to get the resources from 
Egypt because they were also starving in the famine. Joseph introduces himself. His brothers and his dad, of course, they're shocked that he lives. Jacob, his father, dies. His brothers fear him because now they figure he'll get out retribution against them. And then we have these famous verses. Genesis 50, verses 19 and 20. Fear not, for I, am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people. It reveals the controller of God's purpose. Do you think that Joseph or his brothers saw all that happening? By the way, Brother Joseph, we're selling into slavery, so later on you can save our lives. Did he know that? No, but the, but the God of the divine design did. And so he could say emphatically to his brothers, fear not. You men are for evil, but you know what? God, from his elevated perspective, he looks down on those twists and turns. God meant it for good. Twenty-eight C. It reveals the comprehensiveness of God's purpose, and we know that God causes all things. Another key word, and this is all, you know I, I make fun of this, and I've done it before, but all means all, and that's all it means. It's one of the most comprehensive, hard words, hardest words to define in Scripture. But that's all it means. All. All things is utterly, totally, absolutely, entirely all-inclusive. No exceptions, no exclusions. John MacArthur quotes, writes, Paul's not saying that God prevents his children from experiencing things that can harm them. He's rather attesting the fact that the Lord takes all that he know allows to happen to his children, even the worst things, and turns those things into pieces of his purpose, his divine design. Fourthly, 28D, it reveals the continuity of God's purpose. And we know that God causes all things to work together. The phrase work together is the word synergeo in Greek. It gives us our English word synergism. Webster defines synergism as the combined action of two or more things which have a greater total effect than the sum of their individual effects. Together, we can see their effects as opposed to apart. Any one thing in your life might not seem to work out anything at all. Perhaps only later do you realize how that one thing brought about another thing was consequently affected a different thing resulting in the final thing being worked out. As far as I know, this is a true story. It appeared in Leadership Magazine in the fall of 1992. A pastor who returned to his pulpit a few weeks after his son committed suicide with, with with great emotion he read his text, which just so happened to be Romans 8.28. He looked at his congregation and said, I cannot make my son's death fit into this passage. It is impossible for me to see how anything good can come out of it. 
Yet, I realize I only see in part. I only know in part. It's like the miracle of the shipyard. Almost every part of our great ships is made of steel. If you were to take any single part of that vessel, be it a steel plate from the hull or a steel a piece of steel from the rudder, and throw it into the ocean, it would sink. Steel doesn't float. But when the shipbuilder is finished, when the last plate has been riveted in place, that massive steel ship floats. He then concluded by saying, Taken by itself, my son's suicide is senseless. Throw it into the sea of Romans 8.28, and it will sink. But when the divine shipbuilder has finally finished, even this tragedy will build together God's unsinkable purpose. See, it reveals the continuity of God's purpose, and we know that all things work. All things work together. The last two. Chapter 28e. It reveals the context of God's purpose. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. Oida, you know, remember we know this. Oida. You may experience it, but we know it before we experience it, that it's true. Paul didn't say that all things are good. He said all things work together for good. You may say, Pastor Ken, you mean even evil and sin, false accusations, injustice, failure, broken relationships, cruelty and betrayal and pain and suffering and hatred and jealousy and abandonment? You mean even that? Everything I just listed is part of the last few hours of Jesus Christ's life on earth. And all worked into God's plan for good and his glory. God will intertwine, merge, fuse, and mingle, combine everything for your ultimate good so you begin to reflect your Savior, Jesus Christ, as it says later in verse 29. Some of you have heard this poem before, The Weaver, I've been heard it for many years. The weaver, my life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors, he worketh steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride. Forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. We see the underside, but he sees the divine design. All things. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good. The last one. It reveals the condition to God's purpose. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This is a warning. This truth, this oida that we know to be true, 
is not for everybody. To those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Those two titles are two of the many titles or descriptions of the New Testament Christian. One author said it this way. Those who love God is written from our perspective, while those who are called according to his purpose is written from God's perspective. Whosoever will may come, man's perspective. I have chosen you before the foundations of the earth in God's perspective. All we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. The one required condition to being the recipients of God's divine promise is simply becoming one of his children. Which leads us to this question. Two questions, actually. The first question is simply this. Do you know Christ personally? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Have you repented from your sin and believe in the only cause, the only answer, the divine answer, which is Jesus Christ? John chapter 1, verse 12 says, But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Acts 4.12 And there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It's only through Christ. Do you know Christ personally? Have you received him? Have you replaced your faith in him and his work on the cross? The second question is this. Are you willing to say today and again tomorrow, God is good all the time? Even when he does not provide the most favorable experience, will you obey him? Are you willing, even when his timetable is not even close to your timetable, to continue to trust him? Are you willing, even when he doesn't explain himself, to keep worshiping with your lips as well as with your life? Are you willing to say today and again Monday morning, God is good all the time? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. With heads bowed and eyes closed, let's take a few minutes to contemplate Romans 8.28. Father, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. If you're here this morning and you say, Pastor Ken, I do not know Christ as my Savior. I've not repented and turned in faith and belief (coughs) in Christ. If you're here this morning and you'd like to have someone show you from the Word of God how you can be saved, Just quickly put your hand up and put it down and I'll meet with you after the service.
Is there anyone like that? Secondly, if you're here this morning and say, Pastor Ken, just pray for me. I realize as we talk through this uh, weakness in my faith, my trust, even though I know, and I know I know, Father, that you would enable me to better exemplify and live out with not just my lips, but with my life. Is there anyone like that? Yes, any others? We thank you, Father, for the scriptures this morning and as we face life and the challenges of life. Oh God, I pray that you will increase our faith. On one hand, that we'll experience your presence and on the other hand, live knowing that you are present. Thank you for making all things good all the time. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Would you stand with me as we close? Thank you.